Miss Major Griffin Gracie is a singular force in our community. She's a veteran of the Stonewall Uprising and has spent the 50 years since working and advocating for incarcerated trans folks, particularly trans women of color who, like Miss Major was, are often housed in men's prisons. Major moved to New York City in the 60s, and when I think about the other trans women from that era, people we now consider to be legends like Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, they weren't spoken about or celebrated in their lifetimes the way that they are today. So with Miss Major, who I also put in that category, I think we have an opportunity and an obligation to give her her flowers now, to celebrate her work and achievements right in front of her face. And as you're gonna hear today, Miss Major still has a great amount of wisdom left to impart. Today, Miss Major lives in Arkansas and is one of the executive producers of Trans and Trumpland. That's a new docu-series that premieres this week and is available on streaming services like Topic and Amazon Prime. From The Advocate magazine, in partnership with GLAAD, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ&A. I know that you had a stroke about a year and a half ago. How are you doing now? I'm doing really well. I have to speak a little bit slower now. I have a problem getting around, but basically I'm doing okay. Thank God for medicine. (laughs) I'm so happy to hear that. Thank you. Now, I want to go back to your early years for a moment. Growing up, you didn't have words like transgender. That wasn't anything in the public consciousness in any mainstream way. So early on, when it came to your femininity, how are you thinking about it? How are you interpreting those feelings? You know, at the time, we weren't sure what we were. I did feel odd with my body. And dresses did feel comfortable. That's what it was. All of a sudden, dresses were important to me. And they were a lot easier to wear than pants. (laughs) And then you were 22, I believe, when you moved to New York City. Yes. How did you find trans community when you got there? Are you kidding? Trans community was everywhere. (laughs) Really? At the time, I went immediately to 42nd Street. Everybody went to 46th Street, trans girls, everybody. So meeting them was not a problem. They were everywhere. And then from there, I found an apartment and moved into that. And it was six floors of nothing but girls. It was fabulous. All trans girls. Yeah. Everyone in the building. A certain comfort came with that. That kept me going. It was a full life, you know. You could have fun. And it was good being around people I felt connected to. I developed good friendships and stuff like that. Yeah, I felt a part of the world. And some of the people that you knew back then were famous names that we know now, like Sylvia Rivera, Marsha P. Johnson, Crystal LaBeja. I know that you worked with Stormy DeLavier. Is it weird to look back and see that so many of these women that you knew have now gained icon status? No, because they're just friends to me. (laughs) They're not icons, you know. I don't know where that term came from, how we got stamped with it, you know. They're just friends. Even though it's happening and it's happened to me, you really don't pay attention to when it's 
started. All of a sudden, it's, oh, my God, there's major, you know. Who, what, where, you know. Oh, me. <laughs> well, I think that unlike those women, you have lived long enough to be celebrated in your lifetime. Do you feel like your work is acknowledged? I do, in a sense of the community I'm from acknowledges me. The gay community doesn't. That's rather hurtful. They remember Sylvia and Martha loudly. And they forget about people who were incidental in that stuff, you know. But that's fine, you know. You get used to that. It happens. Just go on and do what you have to do. Keep going forward. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Well, you know, it has to do with the time. A lot of people don't take the time to find out what started, what have happened, what was the importance of it. And they pick people in that that they will admire. The fact that they ad- admire those two, good. I'm glad that they do. They don't have to know all of us. And back in the 60s, you know, before Stonewall occurred, were you involved in activism then? I was involved with it when my friend died, Puppy. She was murdered in her apartment by some man. We knew at the time in the community that someone who knew her had murdered her. And the police did not care. It didn't matter to them at all. And that was hurtful to us. And so that started my activism. Then I wanted to know what cars people were getting in, what the person looked like who they got in with. When they left and when they came back was important. And all of us started keeping notes up when it was to keep up with the John because we didn't know what would happen to us then. And so back then, in order to keep yourself safe while you are doing sex work, were you learning by trial and error? Or did somebody help you teach you or like mentor you in that way? You know, it was both. You learn things different to what someone tells you. You know, you learn by trial and error and you paid attention to what the girls tell you because you don't know it all. Nobody does. And you've actually said that you loved doing it. You loved being a sex worker. What did you like about it? The number of guys. (laughs) The money, especially the money. (laughs) You know, I went into this because it was fun. Other girls went into it for survival, to make it, you know. And I was lucky that I always worked. I got a job in social services at first and extra money from the job. So with the apartment building that you were living in, the six floors of trans women, if you can like estimate like what percentage of them were also doing sex work? All those <laughs> the whole building. <laughs> One or two might not have been doing that, but other all of us were. We had different hours, you know, than somebody else. But all of us partook of that certain activity. (laughs) Yeah. And I guess what I'm getting at is, like, back then, there were very few options for employment. There were none, really. You had to get a job in your male persona and hopefully 
work at that. That was all that we had. The entire building, that for mainly two people, would have to do that. It was hard, but I guess being around people who thought like you did made it seem possible. It made it worthwhile. And so I mentioned Stonewall a little bit ago, and you were there the night of the uprising. Yeah. 50 years later, what stands out in your memory of that night the most? Well, I got knocked out early in it because I heard from the girls that you need to piss those guys off so that the police would knock you out and then you didn't get hurt. And so I was concerned with getting hurt, getting something broken or being bashed, you know, where I could not work no more, you know. So I spit in some guy's face and he knocked me out. That I remember. (laughs) Other than that, I remember nothing. (laughs) So I've always heard that you were knocked out that night. I never knew that it was your decision that you made that it would be safer to be knocked out. Oh, yeah. It was a decision because it was safer. (laughs) It was safer. (laughs) And it would have been if I stood and fought them. No, I'm not doing that. I was young and I was pretty and I wanted to keep my face. I mean, there were so many laws against cross-dressing at that time. Were you like presenting as a woman that night? Yes. Oh, yes. Always. Please. But you had to have three articles of men's clothing on to let somebody know that you were a man. I wore a t-shirt under my blouse. I had an earring at the time that said I'm a man. What was the third piece of clothing? It was a pair of underwear. (laughs) Okay, it's a little bit harder to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But that's what it was. And so that was 1969. So much has changed since then for trans people. And so much still needs to change. But on an individual level, what has changed in your life? Well, my life is better in general. I can shop. I can go about my day. In whatever time I please, you know, that has changed a lot. What hasn't changed is one or two people have an attitude about me, you know. But with the way things have turned out, I don't care. They don't like me. Oh, well. (laughs) And I'm going about my business. That's important. You know, a consistent aspect of your life seems to be that you've always been this mother figure. You have kids, biological and chosen. Was it always important to you to be a mother? No, in the beginning, I never thought I would be. But as time has evolved, that's a very sweet thing that they've done. Because when they asked me to do that, it means something to me that they've asked me. When they ask you to be their mother? Their mother, yeah. What, you say no? (laughs) to something like that, you know. It makes me feel good that they trust me enough to do that. I try to make sure that I don't let them down. How many people call you mother? Are you kidding? I can't count. (laughs) I don't know. Give me an estimate, like 20, 60. An estimate, okay, of 100 people say that know me. 99 call me mother. (laughs) Okay, so I was a bit off. Yeah, yeah. It's a large number, but that's what it is. Well, when people talk about you, it also seems like you are a mother in 
action and practice, you reach out to people with, you know, phone calls and messages. Yeah, I do. You take it seriously. Very seriously. Because it's important to acknowledge it and to respond, to be there when they need you. And the best way to do that is to call and see what's happening, find out how they're doing, what's happening in their lives, not just mine. I think what stands out and is heartbreaking to me is that while you have mothered many, your own parents really struggled with your gender. Is it too simple to draw a line from, you know, what was missing from your own parents to like what you do now for other people? No, because parent, my parents have to go through whatever they do. Their position that they took upon me was their position. There's nothing I can do about that, you know. But I can do that when someone comes to me. I think the thing is that parents, when they're given a male or a female at birth, they expect that person to grow up and stay in that thing. And they're entitled to that. If they can learn from it and gradually change with you, good. If they can't, also good. You can't forces on them. Did your parents ever come around? Oh, my mother died waiting for me to change. My father lived about 10 years after mother died. He came around. He wouldn't call me she, but he acknowledged that Miss Major did exist. <laughs> so what more could I ask? Our language for gender has really evolved, especially in your lifetime. You know, we've had words like cross-dresser and transvestite, transsexual. We've used words like pre-op and post-op. Did you identify as each of these things at one point or another? Every now and then, I listen to it and tell myself, no, no, I'm not in that. No, not at all. But it seems like you finally like settled on transgender and use that for yourself, though. I use that now. Before, I considered myself a man that liked to wear dresses. That's all. And now it's like, okay, well, I'll, I'll be transgendered since it's a popular term. Were you identifying as a woman and, um, I mean, using this language when you were incarcerated? I'm wondering if there was ever any discussion about housing you in the women's prison. No, there was never any. I went straight to the men, and that was fine. Because when I got there, I let them know I'm a woman. And then I got locked up. And it was fine, you know. No one wanted to beat me up. Of course, I'm six, well, six two and 250 pounds, so don't fuck with me. <laughs> Basically, it was nice. It was nice. W- what was nice, specifically? It was like being in New York City on 42nd Street. You had some freedom to move around. There were a couple of girls in prison with me. Even in prison, you had other trans women there? Yeah. Oh, sure. There were in every prison I went to. Yeah, there were some there. And while you were incarcerated, you really credit that with where you learned about prison abolition and how it affects the trans community specifically. It was in Dana Moore. There was a prison and mental institution. And they put me in the mental institution first. And that was hard because they stripped me down in front of everybody and maybe walk the places that I had to go naked. 
I became aware of what was going on. And then they had the Ethical Riots and they brought those, some of those guys and put them in the same cell block I was in, the whole. I got to talk to them and learn everybody suffered in there, you know, to not take it on as if I was the only one that had happened. It happened to all of us. I then realized what I had to do. I have to do something to keep the girls safe in there. And you did this work for many years with the Transgender, Gender Variant, and Intersex Justice Project, the TGIJP. Now you're one of the executive producers of the new docu-series called Trans and Trumpland. What made you want to be part of that series? Because the people need to know that this country is but fucked up. Not just him, you know. He got in because of that. And that's something's wrong with that, you know. I think the series obviously delves into these very serious issues, but I also think it's nice that it shows that you can be trans and not live in a big, major metropolitan city. Yes. And that changed. Like, I'm in Arkansas now. I've never thought about coming to Arkansas. <laughs> you figure I'm Black, I'm male, I'm female, <laughs> you know. And Arkansas, no, never. But now... I can move here. And it's been nice here. Quiet, unobtrusive. I go about my day and they don't bother me as much as they would have in a large city. It's amazing the change that's happened. The change in the, in the world or the change like in your life? The world in general. I was traveling before this pandemic hit. Everywhere I went, I would accept it. I didn't have to hide. It's changed. Well, the world has changed, but I'm also curious about your own like experience of gender. Has that evolved over your life as well? You know, it's an everyday thing. You become confident in stuff every day. You become more secure in your standing as who you are. And it has an effect on you when things change outside your purview. You feel you belong. It's not just that we're alone in the dark in the back. We're standing forward now. Sometimes the light is on us, you know? And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. I've seen you rock, you know, a stubble and a gorgeous wig, and I didn't know if you'd always feel comfortable doing that. Oh, yeah, I I am who I am, you know, and I feel feminine. And the masculine things don't affect me. But I do good to be here. Most girls don't make it past 30. It's a rough life that we have. And nobody understands it to whereby a girl can get to this age, you know. I mean, do you have any friends that are your age that are trans? Not that many. That's few and far between. I don't know any that I can recall at all. The girl who lived in the building, that's maybe one so alive. Yeah, it's hard. It's very hard when you think about it. You've also lost just a lot of people in your life from friends and family and, and partners. With everything that we're talking about, has that changed how you think about your own death? You know... I don't think about it. Once in a while, I do. 
when my son was born, the oldest one, and now this new one. I would want to be here for his getting older, you know, and get to know him like I have my other sons, you know. I don't think about it because it's an inevitable thing. We all have to get there sometime. I figure, well, why worry about it? It comes when it does. Yeah. What are the big things you still want to do? I want to start traveling again. I want to go places. Get to know the girls that are out there. Let them see that they can touch me. I'm alive. There aren't that many Black girls still alive to come this far. So we got to be there for everybody. Let them know that they can get here too. Last question before I let you go, but... You know, 50, 60 years ago, while you were living in New York City, if someone had told you that you would become one of the most celebrated trans elders alive, what would you have said to that? I'd have said they're kidding and went on with my business. (laughs) It would not have happened. No, (laughs) no way. (laughs) Thank you for spending so much time with us today. Of course. It's nice talking to you. And that's Miss Major Griffin Gracie. Now, again, if you want to see the docu-series that she's the executive producer of, that's called Trans in Trumpland and is available on streaming services like Amazon Prime or Topic. Now, if you enjoyed this interview, please take a second to leave a comment for us on Apple Podcasts. Doing things like that really does make a big difference, just like tweeting about us or posting about us on social media. So thank you so much to everyone who does that. And if you do, make sure you tag us. We're on Twitter and Instagram at LGBTQPod. I'm on there at JeffMasters1. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. And then next week, we will be back with Jim Obergefell, who you know from the famous Supreme Court case Obergefell v. Hodges that made marriage equality legal. So that is this Tuesday. I'll see you right back here. Bye.